So today, like we already talked about, is the first Sunday of Advent. That means that from this day until sundown on Christmas Eve, we're in a season, and the season's name is Advent. It's when we look backwards. We look back to Israel in the Old Testament when Israel was longing for the Messiah to come. And we learn by that, we learn from Israel's longing and waiting, we learn that we too are waiting. We're waiting on the return of Christ. In the way that Israel was waiting on the first arrival of the Messiah, we're waiting on His return. And what are we waiting for? We're waiting because when He returns, He will finish His work of making all things new. Like it says in Isaiah chapter 55, when the thorns and thistles will be replaced by cypress and myrtle, when dust and death will be replaced with fresh water and new life. So there's coming a day when the creator who is our redeemer will complete the victory that he so decisively won on the cross and in the resurrection. When fully and finally, blessing will replace curse, homecoming, replace exile, olive branches will once again appear after the flood, and a new family will be created in which all of those who are scattered and alone and lonely will finally have a home. And so for these four Sundays leading up to Christmas, we're going to focus on suffering. Each week, we're going to look at suffering because suffering is the engine of Advent. It's, it's the thing that gives Advent its energy because it's as we suffer the thorns and thistles, the death and the disease, the curse and despair, that we long for Jesus to return and take this stuff away. The Redeemer to return and make all things new. We look forward to celebrating the birth of Christ, but we look beyond that celebration to longing for His return. Now, each week, we're going to deal with a different type of suffering, and, and we're going to see how different sufferings can help us practice Advent. This week, the specific suffering for us to consider is sickness. Serious, chronic, profound, physical, and mental illnesses. I'm talking about sickness you don't deserve. Like the blind man, right? Who sinned? Well, he didn't. He didn't deserve this. I'm talking about the serious, chronic illnesses, whether it's of body or mind, that we do not deserve. But they rise up in our lives and they maul us like monsters. Evil comes alive and it is powerful. And as you experience brokenness in your body, that is evil. As you experience brokenness in your mind, that is an evil and it leaps out at us. I'm not talking about the common cold or a low-grade depression, but I'm talking about when illness grows teeth and claws and snarls and leaps out and turns gardens into deserts and it turns human lives into dust and ashes. I'm talking about cancer and Lou Gehrig's disease and Alzheimer's. 
But I'm also talking about mental illness. In 2016, the National Alliance on Mental Illness and the National Institute of Mental Health said that approximately one in five adults in the U.S. experience mental illness in any given year. Now, what we've got to learn to think is the same way you think about physical illness. How many adults do you think experience a physical illness of some sort in a given year? That's no surprise, right? Whether it's a common cold or, or some broken leg. You, we've got to learn to recognize the same thing is going on in mental illness. One in five. But when it comes to severe mental illness, things like major depressive disorder, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, PTSD, they say that right now the best estimate is one in 25 adults. Eight to 12 people in this church this morning. Not long ago, uh, two adults in our church who are married invited eight people to their house for lunch on Sunday from this congregation after worship. Six of them, unbeknownst to anybody else, as they began to talk, six of them had bipolar disorder. And they admitted it. And they looked around and it was only two of them who were weird. Statistics tell us that 13% of the children in our church who are between the ages of 8 and 15 will experience severe mental illness at some point in their lifetime. So whether it's celiac disease or bipolar disorder, cancer or schizophrenia, muscular dystrophy or major depressive disorder, there is a high likelihood that if you are breathing... Before your life is over, either you or someone you're closely related to, or someone you're closely related to, somebody they know, one of you will suffer from profound sickness, whether it's physical or mental. And Advent, the season we're beginning today, it helps us make sense of this. Let me show you what I mean. If you have a Bible, find our Old Testament reading, Job, the book of Job, chapter 23, and find the very last verse in that chapter, Job, chapter 23. The very last verse is verse 17, but notice the very last phrase of the last verse, thick darkness covers my face. One of the most devastating things about physical and mental illness, serious physical and mental illness, is that it is terribly lonely. Flannery O'Connor, the great novelist whose life was dominated by the disease known as um, lupus. Uh, she had it for a lot of her life, took a long time to diagnose. That's the worst, isn't it? When you don't know what's going on. Finally diagnosed when she was 27 and then 12 years of very painful treatment and a continually degenerating life. She died at 39 from it. She once wrote, sickness is a place where there is no company and where nobody can follow. It's a journey. And nobody can go with you on it. And nobody can take you from it. And so in our psalm this morning, turn to Psalm 42. 
In Psalm 42, we see this darkness. We see what it looks like for someone to experience a thick darkness covering their face. We see how the isolating darkness of serious sickness can overwhelm a person so that in the midst of the howling gale force winds of that illness, all of the normal navigation points that you're normally able to use to figure out where you are with people and where you are with God, they're gone. And so one of the deepest struggles with serious sickness is it's profoundly disorienting. You can no longer read where you are with people, where you are with God. And when this happens, when illness takes you on the lonely journey to a dark despair, it's over. Look at these words. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God. What does it mean to be thirsty? It means you need water and you don't have any. What does it mean that he's thirsting for God? He's parched. Where is God? He doesn't have him. If he had him, he'd be full. He'd be saying, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. But that's not what he says. He says, I'm dying of thirst here, God. Thirst for what? Well, look what he calls God, the living God. He's dying inside. He needs the living God. He can't find the living God. My tears have been my food day and night while they say continually to me, where is your God? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to make light of it. I'm not, I'm not trying to just kind of name this thing as if that solves the problem. It doesn't solve the problem. Illness takes us on these lonely journeys to dark places. And in these places, the God revealed in the crucified and risen Jesus can bring, in the midst of your pain and suffering, gifts. But notice... The pain and the suffering is not a gift. It is an evil. The gifts come in the wounds. But the wound itself, we should never make light of it. We should never romanticize it. It's terrible. It's a darkness. It's an evil. What I want us to see this morning is that when we suffer from physical and mental illness, God can work His grace out of our suffering. Sickness can be a vehicle that God uses for our transformation. Now, notice again, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When will I appear before his face? When will I enter and see the face of God? When is it going to happen again? When, it's happened before, but when will it happen again that I actually am in his presence and sense his presence and know of him? This is why people are continually saying to him, where is your God? One of the ways that serious illness can be so painful is that at some point we endure the excruciating absence of God. And as this goes on, you will feel as if you are being swallowed up by a beast. 
that you are melting away in the darkness, that you're enduring a cruel, lonely, spiritual death. The darkness can become so disorienting, so overwhelming, that you have no idea where God is or what he's up to. That's what it means to have your face covered by darkness. With deep suffering, it becomes impossible for any of us to discern clearly what God is up to. So much suffering. So much mystery. Look over at verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. If you read the Old Testament, you know that that threefold parallelism is him in poetic form making the most terrible observation he can make. When deep calls to deep is a reference to Genesis chapter 1 and the primordial waters of chaos out of which God brings land and heavens and sky and birds. The next time those waters show up or when they break forth from their bounds with Noah and destroy the earth. The next time the waters show up is when the nation of Israel has come out of Egypt and they get to the Red Sea and they say to God, you should have killed us in Egypt. We can't handle this. The waters of chaos are in front of them and he says here, God, you created order out of chaos and now that Chaos is coming back into my life. Decreation, uncreation. I am being dissolved. I'm, being, I'm, be, I'm coming apart. I, I, I'm no longer an integrated whole. I'm losing myself. I'm losing my mind. I'm losing my body. Reality is coming apart for me. This is overwhelming. But look what he says after that. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say continually to me, where is your God? So look, he says deep calls to deep in verse 7. He has this threefold repetition that, that chaos is overwhelming his life. And then he says, now I know the Lord commands his steadfast love. But then he goes right back to, but why have you forgotten me? So here's, here's what's going on here. And this, this is in the midst of serious suffering. God is at work. But he's at work so deeply, you can't see it, or feel it, or know it. And it takes every single ounce of faith you've got to barely believe it. This is, this is the worst part of suffering. We do not need to know what God is doing, or when it will end, or how it will work out, that is entirely out of our control. What we need to know is that He is at work. And we need to cling to that. And that's what He's doing there in that verse. What I'm trying to say is that in sickness, we learn about God 
through God hiding from us. Faith seeks understanding. Faith builds on understanding when it's granted, but faith does not finally depend on understanding. He doesn't understand it. Job didn't understand it. The remarkable thing about the book of Job is if you ever read it, you know what's going on because you actually get to hear what God and Satan were saying to each other, but Job never heard that conversation. That's the irony of the book. The person going through it has no fat clue. He has no idea. And so over and over, he says, God, where are you? What are you doing? I can't see you. I can't feel you. I don't know. And this is the deal. We're normally not in the place of the reader of Job. Normally in suffering, we're in the place of Job. Totally clueless. The darkness of God is covering our face. That's what he says at the end of Job 42. And this is hard. This is a very, very hard thing. There is a mystery to God and our relationship to him. But he is in the dark night in ways that are very hard to imagine when you're in it. One of the worst things you can ever say to somebody who's going through serious suffering is, what is God doing? Because it is in the nature of serious suffering that a person can't know that. We have to, in these moments, surrender to the journey of pain and struggle and wait. If we trust God enough to allow him the full freedom to transform us, his scalpel must cut deep into the center of our soul. And such a cut takes a long time. Think about Job. He starts by making a remarkable confession of faith after all the initial turmoil has occurred. In Job chapter 1 verse 21, he expresses his faith in God. And then it takes him 41 chapters to get back to faith. To return to the starting point. And in that time, you know what his wife does? She tells him to curse God and commit suicide. What would it take for a woman who loves her husband to tell him the best way is suicide? Can you imagine how dark this moment was? His friends arrive and they sit with him for seven long days and nights in silence. And then worse than that, they open their mouths. Have you read what they said? It's terrible. You know what they say? Well, God is in control. You must have done something wrong. And God rebukes them for their lunacy. He rebukes them at the end of the book. They were wrong. He longs for death. He curses the day he was born. He becomes a scapegoat in his society. And so on and on and on the book of Job goes. Endless chapters of anger and despair and pain and hell. And one of the deep lessons, one of the greatest gifts that can come in the wounds of illness is that you can learn that human life is out of your control. See, my family just read through the book of James in our evening devotions, paragraph after paragraph for the last several months. In that passage we read this morning, uh, James chapter 4, where he tells those who say, tomorrow I'm going to go, next year I'm going to go to this town and I'm going to make all this money. He calls it evil. You know why it's evil? They don't know that their life depends on God. 
One of the gifts that can come in the wound of suffering is that you stare into the pit of your own death and you know that life is not in your control. James rails on wealthy people. He starts in them in chapter 1 and then almost every chapter he takes a pot shot. Why? Because it is so hard when you are in control to think that you're in control. And he knows that this is a deadly disease. We do not ultimately fashion the conditions of our life. For some of us, this is hard because your primary project in life is to be independent. But the true God will always disappoint our desire for independence and self-sufficiency. Now how? How do we do this? How do we actually survive a dark night where God cannot be seen when He is hidden? Go back to Psalm 42. In verse 4, these things I remember, the middle of verse 6, my soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember. In the dark night, the critical move is to recall. It's not suffering makes me remember. No, it's in the teeth of suffering. I remember. Now, notice what he remembers. He remembers two things in Psalm 42. In verse 4, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. He remembers this. He remembers worship. That's what he remembers. Why is he remembering it? Well, it's kind of confusing, but look at the end of verse 6. From the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mazar, for whatever reason, he can't go to church. I can imagine mental illness can keep you out of church. Depression can keep you out of church. It can keep you out of your family. It can keep you locked in your room. Physical illness can keep you out of this. And so while he is unable to do this, he forces himself to remember doing this. When he can't feel God, the critical move is to remember. To remember Advent is when we discipline ourselves to remember when we no longer feel God's presence. However you feel about yourself or about the world or even about God, our feelings can never be the basis. Think about Eve in the garden. Her problem was that she relied on what she saw and what she felt rather than what God had said in the past. She didn't remember, not in this kind of way. And this is so hard, especially if you're struggling with mental health. There are times when people struggling with mental health simply are unable to feel pleasure. Did you know this? Did you know that chemical and biological processes can go go on in somebody's brain? It's symptom. There's a term for it. Anybody know it? Anhedonia. No pleasure. Physically impossible to feel pleasure because of chemical processes in your brain. This inability to feel pleasure, but the fact that we may not be able to feel God's nearness, the joy of God's nearness, doesn't mean God doesn't love us or that we're lost or that we're damned or that we, if we just pray harder, everything will be okay and we'll feel Him again. 
Yes, feeling the nearness of God is wonderful. Feeling that God loves us is beyond measure. And prayer is crucial. But, but the issue is, that can't be the basis. When you are suffering from illness, physical or mental, it is important to be reminded that God is objective. In other words, God is not a matter of our subjectivity. God is objectively real whether we feel him or not. The second thing that he does in Psalm 42 is he prays. Look at verse 8. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love and at night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. James chapter 5 verse 13 says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. And if you've ever suffered, you should laugh then. Because in deep suffering, it's not, it's almost impossible. God is so funny. Uh, last night, I don't know what I did. I, I, I drank coffee too late in the afternoon or chocolate or I don't know, something. And I woke up like at one wide awake and I couldn't go back to sleep and I, I get up at four on Sundays, and I was like, come on. And this morning, I was like, God, you know, you kind of let me down last night. I need to sleep on Sundays. I got all this work to do. And then I realized, you know, while I was going through that, I, I tried to pray, and I couldn't. I was jittery, and I couldn't focus my thoughts. And <laughs> I don't know if this was God or not, but it sure is a convenient illustration. I couldn't pray last night, and that's nothing compared to serious suffering. So the, one of the strange things about this passage is that it says, in the night he prays. I've been told that, that prayer for a mentally ill mind is exceedingly difficult. Not only is it hard to concentrate, which is necessary for prayer, it can be painful to give thanks. So what do we do? What do we do in serious suffering when we know prayer is what we need to do, but we can't even do that? Here's, here's what I think the psalm is telling us. Strap yourself into the prayers of the church. Strap yourself in. If at any way possible you can get here on Sundays, get here on Sundays and stand in this room a mute and we will pray for you and we will pray around you and we will pray next to you. And if that's all you can do, come into the prayers of the church. That's what he says. I remember. I can't do. I remember when I was with them. Strap yourself in. Not just the prayers of the church on Sunday morning, but the Psalms. Grab a hold of the Psalms because they're full of this kind of stuff all over them. They're full of this. The Psalms, they are bred in the wilderness and secular modern humanity is starving. The Psalms are the bread miraculously provided by Christ to feed those who have followed him into the wilderness. A third thing he does. Look at the end of verse 5. Hope in God. So funny. Verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. This is self-talk. Can you see him? He's totally overwhelmed. Isn't this what it's like in major depression, in major sickness, in major illness? You kind of almost feel divided. And he's looking at himself and saying, what gives? What's going on? And he's commanding himself. Hope in God. This is the third thing. He remembers prays or finds a way to pray or gets people to pray for him and hope. This is Advent, sickness and suffering and death. What Advent reminds us of, what Advent teaches us is that they are real, but they are not ultimate. 
sickness, your mental health issues, your physical issues will not have the last word. And so Advent is the time of the year where we discipline ourselves to take in all of that pain and to turn it into a prayer and to say to God, would you come back already? Really? Do we have to have another year of this? Do I really have to go through this again? Would you please come back? Would you heal me and my family and this world? You take all of this brokenness and you take sickness and you take illness and you turn it into a prayer and you long for the day when Christ will return and make all things do, but that's so hard to do because our imaginations are shrunk. They're shrunk by the long winter of secularism that says what you see and feel and taste and touch is all there is. Science is definitive. And we've lost the ability to imagine a supernatural world where God can do supernatural things. And our imaginations are shrunk by our impoverished view of heaven that's been reigning for 200 years here in America where we think the end of this game is to leave here and go there. That's not what we're praying for. We're praying that God would heal here. That his will would be done here, on earth, the way it's done in heaven. Sickness and suffering and death, they are evils that plague human life. But they are not the greatest evil. The greatest evil is to lose God. At the heart of Christian belief lies a suffering, crucified God. Evil will finally be conquered and it will be done away with. When you are sick, when you are really, really sick, it can be so natural to long for an escape. But you need to go past that. And you need to pray for healing. And the ultimate healing is the return of Christ when all shall be well. And all shall be well. And all manner of things shall be well.